Welcome to Ecopod, the first ecological, anti-fossil and mildly heretical podcast created by the RNS Task Force of International Students at the Center for Development and the Environment. My name is Nina Vitoshek and I'd like to cordially welcome the following guests in the studio. Hello, my name is Wendy Sloan and I am a master's student of philosophy at the University of Oslo and I'm from the United States. Hi, my name is Imre and I'm from the Netherlands. I'm currently taking a PhD at Norges Idrettshøyskole and I'm also involved with the Arninas program as research assistant. And my name is Martina Marcelova um, and I uh, come from Slovakia originally. Uh, I am a master's student at um, the University of Oslo as well. Um, uh, I at the program of literature and cultural studies and I'm also a grant holder um, at the Arninas uh, research uh, group. Hi, my name is Adrian Franco. Uh, I come from Peru and I'm also a master's student at the University of Oslo and I'm on the Development, Environment and Cultural Change program. My name is David Chakran and I'm a friend of Nina's and I help to carry equipment. <laughs> You're very kind, David. You're welcome. Uh, now, today we are going to talk about the topic the Norwegian eco-philosopher Arnenes was obsessing about all his life namely developing the ecological self. Uh, why? Because, according to Arne, uh, the ecological self was a pivotal condition of preventing the environmental Armageddon. And I must immediately admit that for all my friendship with Arne, I've always been a bit nervous about this ecological self. Uh, because why? Because the question is how to reboot our selfish brains and egos. Do we need to go vegan, for example? Do we need to practice yoga, find a shaman, uh, take mushrooms? And are those who do not boast an ecological self some kind of lower beings? Now, Imre, you define yourself as a deep ecologist. Uh, what is an ecological self for you and how do you get there? Yes, thank you, Nina. Uh, I do indeed identify myself as a deep ecologist. Um, I would stay very close to Ness's idea of the ecological self, which means the process of self-realization and the diminishing of the narrow ego, um, as well as the realization of the undeniable intertwinement of the human and non-human worlds. But how do you get there? How do you become this enlarged ego? For me, the main way would be through yoga and meditation. Is it only yoga and meditation? It's not something natural in you? Yeah, no, I love being out in nature. Uh, if That would be my first short answer. Exactly. Um, being out in nature or specifically thinking about the ecological self as something um, either natural or getting there, or is there something natural about getting there? This whole, the whole, this whole trajectory of getting there uh, makes, me, makes me a little bit curious. Um, are we all deep ecologists when we are um, small kids? being out in nature and loving it? Um, or do, is it something that we need to obtain? That is the question. I think that maybe we are all deep ecologists when we are born in Norway. I've always been <laughs> jealous, by the way, of the Norwegians. You know, they are born a deep ecologists. They don't need to struggle like me, you know. They, they, I want to have this kind of the orgasm of the soul that the Norwegians have as a natural thing, you know. And Yeah, and I would say that I feel we're all born deep ecologists, but not only has nature been colonized, but ourself has been colonized. And we have no way of appreciating 
nature for what it is. I mean, we see nature as something lesser, animalistic, baser, but we're all talking about nature and deep ecologists as this expansive ego that is almost transcendent, like Buddhist, you know, enlightenment. But I don't think that, I think that's a very counterculture view and not necessarily in the dominant strain of things. Um, but I think people also tend to forget that it's not only outside our homes or out, uh, outside in wild free nature or what you say, a transcendental thing. It's also speaking to the plants in our windows or growing our own vegetables. Yeah, exactly. This brings me back to the to the to the born into it. Um, I'm a student, but I'm also a mother and I have this tiny little creature at home. Um, she's two years old and she loves talking to ducks. She loves talking to butterflies. Um, just a couple of days ago, we've, 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 uh, we've been to the forest and uh, she found a little stick floating, uh, floating in the water and she asked the ducks to help her, you know, f get it out. And the ducks actually came very close to her and they helped her. And she said, thank you. And then she ran after them and she shouted, Tusentak, you know, the Norwegian thank you. I think children have a much larger freedom in being expressive about the connections they feel and more playful with it. I think in our modern society and civilization, there's a much stricter fixed story of separation that we live in. And then we kind of lose that sense that can make these deeper connections, not only with other people, but also with non-human living beings. Yeah, but it's interesting because what you've mentioned with your daughter, Martina, and like what you said about Norwegians just being born deep ecologists, um, Nina, it's interesting because I feel like every place has that thing that they appreciate, that last remnant of nature that exists that they appreciate more than anything. I mean, I'm from Florida, and everybody in my little community goes to this one pier every single night, every single night. It is a ritual. And you see all your neighbors, you see everybody that lives there, and you sit and you say goodbye to the sun. Everybody says it, goodbye sun, and you see it everywhere. We see it with in Norway when you welcome back the sun after winter. Um, and in all these different parts of the world, there's always something that we grasp onto. We just haven't fully explored it. I, I don't know. I, you, so you have grown in a culture where, it was, I mean, this is Poland, right? And, and it's Poland in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and most of the people got an ecological self when they got completely, completely drunk. Uh, so. Uh, uh, this is how what I learned about this ecological self. It was mostly in the city, mostly in very smoky interiors. They were smoking like chimneys, and they were getting drunk on vodka, not even good wine, for God's sake, but vodka. And then they were embracing uh, all living beings, including Nina Vitoshek. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask uh, if you can maybe help me with this. Uh, when I had when I was a child I went on retreat and I just like whenever I had a problem at home I just like ran to the woods and I didn't I d didn't have this it was w really weird I, I didn't have this feeling I was alone I think the, the the snails the birds everything around me was watching me and I could talk to everything but I, I don't know this this feeling that I had at first just like started to wither away and as I became more rational uh, bigger I just like said oh, what am I doing here I'm just like standing in the middle of a, a garden or like somewhere like in the middle of the woods alone you know it's, mm -hmm. it's you just like start to lose that mm -hmm. and then you get to the point when you want to go back and mm -hmm. feel that again 
I think there's a lot of people that would say what you're describing as well is what scares them, you know, going out into nature and feeling all the eyes on them and, you know, just because um, we have this inherent fear of being in the wilderness. When a child goes through this developmental phase, um, uh, there is a tension between two very different responsibilities or feelings of responsibilities that we, and I'm going to sound like a psychoanalytic, I'm not, um, but that we suppress. And one is this, this, this um, um, being sad for losing the friend of the tree in the nature um, that we felt so very well uh, embellished by and just embraced and very, you know, very comfortable in. And the other one is shame that we cannot really be part of this smart, verbal, you know, linguistic community where everything is rational and makes sense. You're all sounding a bit, bit like uh, William Wordsworth and the, 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 the lake poets from England, from the romantic <laughs> times, when they're looking back to childhood or, or longing for the experience of nature from their childhood, which was mm -hmm. completely innocent and, and more direct. Well, it was more than that, David. You see, because the Wordsworth and Shelley believed that not only were children in touch with or had hotline to nature, mm. but that they had hotline to the previous life. Yeah. So there's this famous anecdote of Shelley, who is on the bridge and is looking at two kids playing there and they are like three, four years old and he's grabbing them. He says, what do you remember? What do you remember? Tell me what you remember. <laughs> <laughs> And I feel like there's this strange sense of looking at, you know, what you just said, David, about looking at, you know, romanticizing nature as being kind of naive. Um, and so that's what makes talking about this so difficult and about getting people to listen to it, because it just sounds like we're a bunch of poets running through the woods saying, oh, my gosh, look at all the beautiful birds and the bees. But that's not what it is. There's a serious issue here that needs to be taken seriously. And so how do but, we But, but what is a serious it? issue now, Wendy? That we're not that we're doing so much harm to the world because mm -hmm. of the way we're existing in it. We're acting as if we're parasites. That the kids have got it right. That the kids have mm -hmm. got it right. And, and what, what fascinates me, which we're talking about, uh, uh, Martina, about your child and the duck and saying thank you to the duck, is how animals can recognize a child, mm -hmm. no matter what Absolutely. species it is, mm -hmm. you know, a, a grown dog will respect that a little kitten is 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 a child, and and when you see dogs taking care of human children mm -hmm. and playing with them, they're domesticated animals, so they know grown-ups are perhaps very complicated and potentially dangerous, but these small little children, they're okay. They're they're one of us. I, I fully agree that children have a, a special capability to have these experiences, but we shouldn't downplay the amount of people, of adults, that also can have these kind of mystical experiences. But I think this comes along with um, maybe two main risks. The first one is that when people have these mystical experiences and gain insights and develop intentions, um, they come back to their normal day-to-day -day lives, but they they don't put actual action to their words and their, to their intentions. And the second one, which I, I think is very common, especially when it comes to spirituality, that people can feel that when they've had the privilege to have a mystical experience, they can feel kind of enlightened or higher up in the hierarchy. Um, so I think, I think it's good to kind of also be realistic about these experiences and what we actually do with it. Uh, Imre, I, I'm very curious about this. Uh, these adults who have already been are at this stage have they, they been uh, grown into this situation or they had to come back to resort once again to 
to what they felt as children? Huh, uh, I guess that depends what kind of childhood they've had. Like not all children grow up with a certain awareness from their parents or with a certain closeness to nature. But speaking from my own experience, I grew up in a yoga family. And I also went to a Steiner school, at least primary school. So when I transited from primary to high school, I noticed a very strong difference mm -hmm. with other teenagers mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. other, the conversations they had and the worldviews they had. So of course I wouldn't generalize that um, it differs per child, yeah. but for me, I felt that it, dif uh, it was different compared to the peers yeah. around me. It, it, it sounds as if we have to like go back to, to this little child that is in us that, had, that was in touch with the world and, um, and that we have to lose our language first in order to obtain some broader uh, interspecies understanding. Uh, but maybe it's just about to be very practical and take kids to the forest to hug them, hug, hug the trees, and to literally embrace schooling system um, in, in ways that are creative so that the shame of uh, not being social enough disappears. Yes, yeah, if Arnold S. was here, he would have said yes, yes, yes. <laughs> to I'm not sure about say. that because, yes, I mean, you can bring them to the, to the forest and have them hug the trees. But, I mean, if your lifestyle in the city mm. is absolutely, you know, in violation of and is non-sustainable, then it's, it's, then it's, even it's, more, it's double talk. And, and even more abrupt that experience for the child would be. No, I, I disagree. I, I think, indeed, it's more about the mundane environment someone grows up in rather than one or two experiences or experiences on a monthly basis. Well, it's better yeah. with one than none. Yeah, yeah sure, sure. It's sure. the little everyday things that we don't pay attention to that really make the difference. So like if, you know, I'm thinking of like inner city places where there are no trees and you grow up never seeing a tree, but maybe there's, you know, a community garden that they got set up because that happens all the time in the city. And that's a, at least a way to start feeling that connection to nature and having it every single day, getting to watch something grow. Yeah, so we mentioned the mundane experiences of children, but I think later in adulthood, people can get a completely different life view based on a crisis or an experience with, for example, drugs. Absolutely. There is this uh, wonderful book uh, written by my favorite writer, nature writer, Michael Pollan, uh, who is also a professor at Harvard University. And uh, the title of the book is Selling, How to Change Your Mind. And uh, what does he say? Well, he, he visited cancer wards. He was interviewing many people who were precisely, as you said, in, in a situation of existential crisis. And he submitted himself to the power of various drugs to find out whether he will get this enlarged self and whether uh, his psychic thermostat will be different right after the experience and and he found out that actually yes uh, the drugs had an incredible influence on people experiencing anxiety uh, breakdown uh, fear of death and uh, the, the especially two drugs psilocybin and uh, ayahuasca were mentioned in the book now has anybody had any experience with any of these drugs Anybody who is brave to say so? Yes, um, I'm, not Age, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not afraid to say that, that I have had ayahuasca. But uh, you're from Peru. I am from Peru. Uh, I don't actually 
uh, well, this, I'm fighting against a, a bit with the word drug here. I think it was an ex most of an experience, most of all. And and there's a couple things that I thought before taking it. Uh, I thought that there was like this uh, shaman who came from the jungle. And, you know, there was preconceptions about this whole thing. And I just got into ayahuasca and I saw that it was a therapy and there were people around me also doing it and there were corporate from the corporate world as me and some of the guys were afraid because they didn't know what was going to happen um, some of them even told me that they were afraid that they would lose control actually when they took the drugs that they would they had this life where they knew exactly what they wanted where they wanted to go but once they would take this vine or this uh, beverage they would wouldn't know what would happen you have to go through a two-week preparation before you take it and when you take it it starts with a physical phase where you uh, throw up a little bit sometimes it doesn't, oh, it doesn't no. yeah yeah it's 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 okay, not the same for everybody <laughs> well it, it's the thing is that people think that this physical part is, is, is distinct from the spiritual part, but it isn't. Everything is part of the same experience. You know, it's the, the vine is there not to say that you're going to have a joy ride or you're going to have a dark ride. Did you get your enlarged ecological self as a result? Yes. Yes, I did. I didn't read about it. Right now, I could actually relate to that experience because I have read about it now, but back then I didn't know what, was I what I was feeling. Oh, now I know why you've stopped being a corporate lawyer and came to the Center for Development and the Environment to study <laughs> nature. Uh, amongst other things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I haven't tried it myself, but I know uh, various people who have experimented with uh, psychedelics. And I mean, it is a a way to kind of kickstart and open the doors to different levels of consciousness. But on the other hand, it also takes away filters that we have for a reason. And when you practice meditation, for example, you can also reach higher stages of consciousness, but it will never take you across the own boundaries that you can handle. So I've also heard negative experiences where it was more difficult to come back and still have the filters back again. Um, so I think it's definitely risky as well. Yeah, and I think there's, you know, always the worry that, you know, people think of drugs as like an easy fix to altering their mind and freeing their mind. But then there becomes a point where if they don't keep up that mindfulness in their day-to-day -day practice, then they immediately fall back into old habits and then think, oh, well, I just need to like take this again and then I'll feel this way again. Um, and so I wonder if you would even get that feeling if you don't go into it with the proper mindset, like if you took it at like a music festival versus, and you know, just, yeah, uh, yes, Adrian. I, I think I can answer that. Uh, I have had ayahuasca two times. Each experience was different from the, the, the next. So Adrian, have you noticed a marked difference in your life and your lifestyle since then? Yes, definitely, definitely. I, I think... There's no situation where I have to resort back to the vine to to learn from it again. I think I could, but I mean, it's not necessary for me. Uh, so you changed? I, I have changed, yes. Do you miss the old self? 
No. Good. Did <laughs> did did it give you uh, tools to self therapeutize yourself? <laughs> this is a very difficult word. Beg your pardon. <laughs> In other words, we hear a lot about the therapeutic uh, value of psychedelics. You you go in and you can see things, as you said you you did. Um, but does it have the lasting effect that you now have the tools to be able to look at yourself, lose your ego, and and fix yourself afterwards? Yes, I did, definitely. definitely. I'm not perfect. People are not perfect. I mean, sometimes you go back and go back to the mundane. You go back to Maya once again, you know. Maya is there. Maya is around you all the time, you know, tempting you. You know, it's going to happen. But and by, by, by Maya, you mean illusion? By Maya, I talk about the Hinduistic version of Maya, which is mundane, mundane right. mundanity. Yeah. Mm. basically mm. 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 it's be very debatable i know <laughs> i know that there's people here that can refute me right but but, but still there was moral <laughs> panic about drugs uh, at the end of the 60s which in a sense finished off the whole business and uh, one of the most disconcerting and and uh, provocative conclusions of michael Pollan's book how to change your mind is the following that uh, uh, the 1968 revolution uh, was uh, what was it about? It was about fighting for uh, women's rights, nature's rights, minorities' rights, you know, civic rights, and so on. So it was a revolution of an enlarged consciousness. And who were the people who were doing this revolution? They were all high on drugs. And uh, this is actually the conclusion which is quite uh, unsettling for anybody who's uh, studying the nature of social movements because this movement was extremely positive and yet it blew many and wasted many people's lives as well. So there was a danger and at the same time an incredible explosion of creativity. But, but don't you think, Nina, that, that uh, once again, you know, the United States and America kind of screwed it up? You know, that it became an industrialized thing where people were taking it in, in all, all sorts of settings without the therapeutic and without any kind of ritual around it, any kind of care. And it became a party drug and it became something for the, the bourgeois, not only have, having everything, but having everything in an, on a multidimensional level. There are certain states now bringing back um, psilocybin mushrooms as you know, treatment for people with PTSD and exactly. depression, anxiety, and different... Um, and then it's done in, in the correct setting, and it's yes, done therapeutically. Exactly. But that's not what the kids in, in, the, in the 60s were doing. Or and, now and, even at music festivals and, and in those and exact some, same settings. And some people say that it was also because it was taking away... I mean, either you could do Prozac or you could do mushrooms, and, pros, and mushrooms were this, way cheaper. Yeah. Yeah. There is this kind of like a, a common denominator here, um, which uh, to me sounds like a loss of control or loss of something. That's why I asked whether, whether Adrian lost something or whether he changed. And then by that, I meant actually, did you lose something? Because change necessarily means loss. And uh, so can we, can we, I'm just going to pose that as a question. Can we consider ecological self as a way of daring to lose? Yes. Uh, uh, Adrian, do you have any comment on that? Yes, definitely. Um, daring to lose, that's very... Wise. Wise, yeah. <laughs> Martina the wise. If I may, uh, I mean, to contradict this, um, also building forth on David, what you just mentioned about the party drugs, is that maybe it's not necessarily to lose something, but I think nowadays people 
like maybe not use dr drugs to develop an ecological self, but in order to even be free to be the mm -hmm. egoic self, mm -hmm. because yes, they don't absolutely. in their day to day lives don't even dare to be themselves and need an external thing to even be able to express their ego or you know who they who they think they are or who they want to be. Yeah, and I think there's also, but there are cases in which you know the environment forces us to lose our egos or humbles us because there's just no other option. Um, and I think one of the most obvious cases is in the far north because it's so incredibly cold <laughs> and so incredibly dark and so incredibly heavy in a sense, the atmosphere, that you can't help but be you know humbled by this environment. And they say that darkness is a way of blurring the boundary between the organism and its milieu. You know, I mean, darkness completely covers you and it, it absorbs you into itself and you lose your ego in a sense because you have this ability where you can't even see your boundedness in between yourself and the world anymore. Um, and so I wonder if even this loss of darkness in our day-to-day -day environments with street lamps, with incredibly bright fluorescent office buildings that completely blind us. In fact, fluorescent lights take away our ability to see because human beings can't see best at dusk and dawn. We don't even properly function in that kind of light. Um, so perhaps there's a we're afraid of darkness, just like we're, we're afraid, afraid of, the of loss or yeah. change. So we need to dare to dare to lose. I just love that phrase. I'm <laughs> coining it, Martina. I'm stealing it from you. <laughs> I'm going to quote you in my thesis. Uh, I don't think so. Well, <laughs> well I, I think it has maybe to do with the the, not maybe the fear of um, losing, but maybe the fear of not knowing. When we, mm -hmm. when our senses are blocked, mm -hmm. we don't know, and we like to know things because that mm -hmm. knowledge gives safety. Or when we know where we are and how things look totally. and how things feel and how things taste. Are those the same thing in a way, though? Yeah, maybe. I mean, because you know, once you like, I mean, think of death. I mean, you know, that's a loss of life, but it's also a loss of sensation, mm. of experience, of knowing. It's something that's beyond the known world's borders. Um, and in the same way, like when you're lo lost in the dark, you do lose yourself, but you also lose your space and to space and time. You have no idea how to orient yourself. Mm. So maybe a child doesn't really lose anything because the child has it all. The child never had a control. <laughs> the child was always, um, I mean, my daughter is still calling herself Runa. And then not long time ago, she was still Mama. So um, maybe there is something there too. <laughs> yeah. But maybe it, it has to do that with adulthood only in our species, only amongst humans, uh, that uh, becoming an adult uh, gives you techniques, it gives you technology, which means that you can screw, screw, screw over nature. That, that the children, uh, once again, they are, they are they're in a way harmless. They are at one with nature. They, they, are, they are no threat. That's why ducks like them. That's why ducks, that's, that's <laughs> why ducks like them. And then that this loss of ego is in a sense very uh, sustainable. There's another book with, which I wanted to quote. And it's been written by uh, R.C. Zayner, who was an expert on Oriental traditions. And um, the title of the book is Our Savage God. And the book is about uh, the famous uh, murder of, uh, which was executed by Charles Manson uh, and his so-called family in 1967, this murder of Sharon Tate and her friends. Uh, Sharon Tate, as you remember, was uh, Polanski's wife, uh, shocked the world. And uh, what was most uh, disturbing was that uh, uh, Manson claimed that he was a 
uh, he had an ecological self, that he had this enlarged self, uh, that uh, there was uh, no difference between uh, uh, good and evil, uh, no uh, union, no duality between him, him and nature. There was a perfect union of opposites that he experienced during the murder, that he had a mystical experience. Uh, and uh, uh, he was, he, in other words, he was in this total uh, um, experience of, of the all-in-one. And uh, there is a dark side to the ecological consciousness, or there is a dark side to the enlarged self. And I wonder if you have any ideas or, or any thoughts on that. Yeah, from the perspective of yoga philosophy, um, you have the soul incarnating in um, in the body and then you have the personality which is kind of in between and the personality functions as kind of the tool of the soul so it's a way of expressing your creativity so if you have that alignment with that connection with yourself and with the world around you your personality and your ego function ideally as a tool to give expression to what you come here on earth to do but of course, when it's driven by the ego and it becomes competition and separation, it starts also functioning in negative ways. Yeah, and I mean, there are dark sides to every movement. I mean, the Dalai Lama said, you know, these terrorists who call themselves Muslim, they're not actually Muslims. Once you've made the decision to go take another life, you've stripped yourself of that title and of that practice. And I would say the same thing with somebody who, like Manson, would, is espousing these philosophies, but yet not truly living them, because obviously his actions have shown a lack of unity and balance. Well, his actions were evil, you know, par excellence. So uh, I think that uh, uh, there are these different sides and aspects of the um, uh, ecological self as an antidote to, um, let's say, separation from nature, to plundering uh, the, 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 the resources of the planet, or antidotes to fundamentalism or terrorism. Uh, I think that that should be studied in more detail. Um, well. In, in the end, I think from what, hearing, from what I was, I've been hearing from you is that we should all uh, have our heads open, but not so open that our brains fall off, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, if I may add to that, to kind of return to the essence, I think it's just the most important realization is that everything is interconnected. And that means that what you do for others, you also do for yourself. So we should kind of stop thinking that there's a lack of everything, like a lack of love of money of material around us and that we step into abundance that we have enough love and we have enough uh, life and diversity around us uh, and that we're all together in this well one interesting uh, piece of research is the brain scans that they did uh, while people were taking the psilocybin and uh, they could see connections that don't ever happen otherwise and this is the reason for some of these some of these, how shall I say, uh, short circuits that give you an experience and give you associations and make you more creative because things are happening from left to right and forward to back and inward and outward in your brain that otherwise doesn't happen. So maybe that is also on the macro level something that's, that's interesting for us to understand that we need, the, we need these connections, we need to be self-repairing and... Uh, reconfigure. Reconfigured yes. and reconfigured. Because although there is an abundance of diversity and of life and of love, there is not diversity of thought in academia. <laughs> <laughs> 
that, that was a very wise conclusion of the whole conversation. <laughs> I like it. <laughs>